This is What Happened to Syria, a podcast about the country, the people, and their impact on the wider world since 2011. This show has taken a lot of unforeseen twists and turns, especially in terms of production. I've had a tendency to write scripts that are way too long, and they end up getting split into two or more episodes. I'm learning how to do this as I go along. You can probably tell from the sound quality. (laughs) I also need to reiterate a blanket trigger warning for the entire series. If you're a survivor of past trauma, or if you just happen to be faint of heart, this series is not for you. There will be graphic descriptions of violence, including torture and sexual violence, to document the crimes that have taken place in Syria since 2011. This show does not pull punches. Swear words and disturbing moments are going to be featured. Last time, we left off at the point where Bashar al-Assad appalled or otherwise pissed off an entire nation with the most tone-deaf speech this side of Mitt Romney's presidential campaign. The protesters responded by continuing to protest and making it clear that the regime's typical bait-and-switch con jobs were not going to cut it this time. Today, we're going to look at what happened after Bashar al-Assad made it clear to the Syrian opposition that the government had no interest in compromising. The following Fridays, culminating in the Great Friday, made it clear that the protesters were not going to be intimidated. first Friday we're going to talk about, April 1st, 2011, would come to be known as the Friday of Martyrs, when thousands of people took to the streets to honor the hundreds of people who had been killed by security forces at previous protests. 5,000 people took to the streets in Dara to make it clear that they were still angry about the regime's abuses. At this point, Dara is almost entirely sealed off from the rest of the country. It's surrounded by soldiers, tanks, and other features of mechanized warfare. The last thing the regime wants is for the uprising in Dara to spread across the country. The fact that protests are now taking place in multiple cities is startling for the government, and they are starting to take increasingly harsh actions to contain the opposition to Dara. This was seen when a 100 Dara residents tried to march to the nearby city of al only to be driven back when the police killed five protesters. This day also saw somewhere between 1,000 to 2,000 people gather in Douma, a suburb north of Damascus. According to eyewitnesses, they were chanting the word freedom, Haraya, when police opened fire on them. Several people were killed. And this is also happening on a smaller scale in other cities elsewhere in Syria. For example, in Homs, a young girl was killed by a by a stray bullet fired by security forces. Once again, regime officials claimed without evidence that an unidentified armed group had been firing at protesters and security forces alike from the rooftops. We'll have more to say on this later. The following weekend and week would see more of the mixed messaging we talked about in the last episode. More prisoners released, more meetings with regime officials and the families of protesters killed in recent days, 
and more arrests. Multiple Macabre agencies are now actively hunting down as many protesters as possible, trying to find people they can arrest and interrogate. This, in turn, helps them identify more protesters and repeat the process all over again. For more on the regime's attempts to placate some segments of the protests, not the movement as a whole, we turn to Dr. David Lesh's book, Syria, The Fall of the House of Assad. Quote, On April 4th, the governor of Dara was fired, and Bashar appointed Mohammed Khalid al-Hanas in his place. No doubt the regime, by appearing to lay the blame for the violence and deaths in Dara on the outgoing governor and some security officers, hoped that this would be seen as a positive response to anger expressed by residents of Dara. It didn't work. On April 6th, Again, in an attempt to secure the support of important constituencies in Syria, the government announced concessions to the Kurds, who made up about 10% of the population and who lived predominantly in the northeastern portion of the country. There had been serious Kurdish protests against the government in the past over issues of citizenship and cultural identity. The most recent of these had occurred in 2004 and had been violently put down by the security forces, especially in the city of Kamishli. Now it was announced that 250,000 Kurds and their descendants, who had been stateless in Syria since the early 1980s, after, according to the government, illegally crossing into Syria from Turkey, would be granted citizenship. The government also made the Kurdish New Year, New Rose, a national holiday, unquote. And this comes after New Rose had been quite literally illegal in Syria since the 1960s. So this issue here about the, the regime and the Kurds, this is an important and controversial sticking point. Some Syrian Arabs get angry at Syrian Kurds for supposedly not supporting the Syrian revolution or even siding with the regime. They'll dismiss everything that Kurds have experienced by saying, quote, all Syrians have been oppressed, unquote. And there is some truth to that, given how Hafez and Bashar al-Assad treated their fellow citizens. But most Syrians were allowed to speak their native language, celebrate their holidays, and not be described as stateless despite being born in Syria to parents and grandparents who were also born in the country. The Arab nationalism that dominated Syrian politics since the Cold War resulted in a state where Kurds faced unusual forms of discrimination in addition to the typical status repression and totalitarianism that every Syrian experienced. Another group that faced persecution in Syria were conservative Muslims, who had been harshly repressed by Hafez al-Assad and were still treated with suspicion by Bashar. At one point, just having a beard, just having a beard was enough for the macabre to look at someone suspiciously. People who happened to be devoutly religious, some might say fundamentalist, they seethed under this pressure. They saw themselves as being oppressed by a secular regime because they worshipped God instead of Assad. To a certain extent, they weren't wrong. Like most totalitarian regimes, Hafez and Bashar al-Assad have some absolutely insane cults of personality. Like there, There's a saying you'll sometimes hear from Assadists, Kneel for Assad, not for God, or it goes something like that in Arabic. One area where Bashar differed from Hafez, though, was that he was willing to approach Western governments and offer his services in support of the War on Terror. People who believe that the 2011 protests were all a CIA conspiracy 
would probably be surprised to learn that the CIA abducted multiple Syrians living abroad and repatriated them via extraordinary rendition to Syria, specifically for the Makabrat to torture them. And this included a lot of people who were completely innocent and had nothing to do with terrorism. For example, one gentleman named Maher Arar. He was found completely innocent after he had been kidnapped by the CIA, sent to Syria, and tortured by the Makabrat. But one important thing to keep in mind is that Bashar was willing to play both sides of the war on terror, working with the CIA on one hand and enabling insurgents to attack the U.S.-led coalition in Iraq on the other. Bashar al-Assad was willing to flaunt his claimed credentials as a secular leader and offer to collaborate with Western governments against terrorists, as long as they assisted his repression of dissidents in the process. This led to a law being passed in 2010 that banned female teachers from wearing the niqab, a face veil worn by some conservative Muslim women. This led to more than a thousand teachers losing their jobs. Keep in mind, this came at a time when unemployment and cost of living was at an all-time high in Syria. These teachers came from families where both parents typically worked. For a teacher or her husband to lose their job, that's a significant blow to their family's income, especially so if both of them lose their jobs. This is one of the points where generational oppression, economic inequality, and yes, religious conservatism intersect. The reason why civic-minded liberals and religious conservatives were able to find common cause in 2011 was that they were both suffering under Bashar al-Assad's highly polished iron fist and the increasing gulf between rich and poor that was threatening to squeeze the middle class out of existence. Gee, why does that sound familiar? People within the regime realized that this put them in a more vulnerable position than ever before. This led to the regime attempting another divide-and-conquer scheme, this time trying to pit the liberals versus the conservatives. David Lesh writes in his book, Syria, The Fall of the House of Assad, quote, on April 6th, the government, in an obvious attempt to appease conservatives and traditional Sunni Muslim elements in the country, announced that the, ba announced that the ban on female teachers wearing the niqab would be rescinded, and that those teachers who had been fired would be rehired. In addition, it was announced that the only casino in Syria, just outside Damascus, would be closed. The casino had been an affront to the more conservative Muslims. Along the same lines, the regime allowed the formation of a pro-government Islamist party, a replacement for the Muslim Brotherhood, which had been banned since the 1970s. So much for being a secular regime. Assad was basically offering the conservatives a position of power within the government in exchange for abandoning the protests. This would have been a convenient way to shrink the number of dissidents in the streets while making minimal concessions, if any. The Assad regime's approach to sectarianism is best described as one of opportunism, whichever approach is the best one for their long-term gain. You want a secular, Western-friendly authoritarian who's willing to help you prosecute a global war on terror? Sure thing! It'll just cost you silence about my human rights abuses and getting me a seat at the World Trade Organization. Whether or not he was being honest, Assad indicated to the conservatives that he could be swayed in the opposite direction if they joined his side. I've mentioned a number of protests in Damascus. Some of them have been significant protests, but they're still not yet on the scale seen in Dara, for example. Most of the protesting in the Damascus area is taking place in the nearby suburbs like Douma. Protesting anywhere in Syria carried the risk of arrest and torture, 
But Damascus was an exceptionally dangerous place for opposition activity in 2011. The regime is going out of its way not to let large public protests take place in its capital city, having soldiers establish checkpoints and other measures to prevent uncontrollable crowds from forming. Sounds like a pretty difficult task. As time goes on, more and more checkpoints can be seen in Damascus and other major cities, notably Aleppo. We've already discussed in previous episodes how Syrian soldiers aren't the most well-trained or disciplined. These guys were given a minimal amount of training for a conventional war with Israel, and now they are being given a Herculean task that they had never once had any training for. When soldiers who are armed to the teeth and have no experience in civilian crowd control are given that task, bad things happen. For more on this, we turn to a passage from Dr. Wendy Perlman's book, We Crossed a Bridge and It Trembled, where she quotes Marcel, an activist from Aleppo. Quote, My first blog about the revolution was on March 15th. I said we deserved freedom. I never wrote under a fake name. That was risky. But I wanted all Syrians to know my identity. I'm a woman. I'm a Christian. And I believe this regime should go. I don't see Muslims as people who kill Christians. I trust you. Let's go forward. Together. By April, I was out in the street. I was living this divided life. I'd go out to protest, but I couldn't tell anyone. My family was supportive, but some friends were repeating what they heard on television about gangs destroying the country. I started to take people I know with me to protest. Jesus said, come and see. I believe that if more people had come to see demonstrations, things would have gone differently. I started to see my mother less and less. One day, I came home to visit. On her way back, the car stopped at a checkpoint, and troops immediately opened fire by accident. She was shot and killed immediately. Some very close friends didn't even come to visit at the hospital, because they were afraid that the security forces would arrest them there. The odd thing was, they were regime supporters. The more someone supported the regime, the more scared of it they were. The revolutionary activists heard my mother died. They'd say the regime killed her, that she is a martyr, and they want to come to the church to pay their respects. Unquote. That was Marcel, an activist from Aleppo, quoted by Dr. Wendy Perlman in her book, We Crossed a Bridge and It Trembled. In that quote, we see through lines that we traced throughout the previous episode. An increasing number of non-Sunni and other non-Muslim Syrians are joining the protests, prompting the regime to deploy soldiers in response and innocent people, whether they be people exercising a right to peacefully protest, or just ordinary citizens going about their lives, end up getting killed by the regime. Checkpoints in Syria are going to develop a reputation for being dangerous, especially for women. Perhaps you can see why, despite granting citizenship to a couple hundred thousand Kurds rendered stateless by decades of discrimination and superficial concessions to religious conservatives, Protesters in Syria were still angry with the regime. This continuing anger was made very clear on the following Friday, April 8th, the Friday of Resistance. Dara, the city that has without question suffered more than any other city at this point, has become the most openly anti-Assad. Protesters are chanting, The people want to overthrow the regime. Ashab Yurid Iskat Anazam. At this point, it is rare to hear people saying that in Syria, but Dara, you're hearing people say it. After being shot at God knows how many times for God knows how many days in a row at this point, 
people are throwing rocks and stones at security forces. On this day alone, 27 people were recorded being killed in Dara. The Damascus suburb Harasta also saw a high-profile, although much less intense, protest taking place. Security forces imposed a roadblock to prevent demonstrators from marching, who allegedly retaliated by throwing rocks at the security forces. Whether or not rocks were actually thrown in this incident, this was the excuse given by the regime when men wearing civilian clothes fired guns at the crowd and killed at least a few people. Other protests took place in Homs, Tartus, Banyas, Idlib, and other cities. At least two people were killed in Homs. April 8th is also important because it saw protests take place in a city called Kamishli. This is a northwestern city about as far away as one can get in Syria from Dara, or Damascus, geographically speaking. But less than a decade earlier, Kamishli or Kamishlo had been the epicenter of Syria's worst unrest between the 1980s and 2011 because of its role as the unofficial capital of Syrian Kurds. A football game in 2004 triggered decades of suppressed rage and frustration when a local, mostly Kurdish team played against a mostly Arab team from Derazor, a neighboring eastern city. The Arab team brought along fans from their city who reportedly drove through Kamishli in a bus insulting Kurds and waving pictures of the Iraqi dictator Saddam Hussein who killed more than 100,000 Kurds in the Al-Anfal genocide. This would be the equivalent to cruising through Israel chanting anti-Semitic slogans while holding up pictures of Adolf Hitler you're very likely going to get your ass kicked by some angry locals, if not worse. For perhaps understandable reasons, the Kurdish residents were pissed off. Now, remember, they've had it bad for decades. They were rendered stateless by an Arab nationalist government back in the 1960s. They responded to racist taunts from the Derazor fans by insulting Saddam, Assad, and Arabs, Eventually, both sides were fighting each other in the streets with knives, sticks, and stones. You might think that the security forces then intervened to break up the fight. Nope, they just shot a bunch of Kurds and provided the Arabs with protection. This led to more rioting by angry Kurds, which led the regime to send tanks and helicopters into Kamishli to lock down the city. Now, seven years after the Kamishli riots, Kurds in northeast Syria were protesting alongside Syrian Arabs, chanting, no Kurd, no Arab, the Syrian people are one. Now, if you're a regime that depends upon divisions among your population to stay in power, this is pretty much your worst nightmare. Now, not only do you have religious minorities joining forces with the Sunni majority, you now have Arabs, Kurds, and other ethnic groups starting to put aside their differences to protest against the regime. It stands to reason that several higher-ranking officials in the Syrian government at this point were starting to feel very, very anxious. They responded by engaging in increasingly vile atrocities. I'm going to read a passage from Qasem Eid's memoir, My Country, to demonstrate just how vicious and vile the Macabre and Shabiha could be. I'll go ahead and reiterate a trigger warning for graphic violence. In this case, it is sexual in nature. Quote, On April 10th, my friends and I decided to take a break from the tense atmosphere in Modamia and spend a day in downtown Damascus. We were walking toward the bus stop near my house when we saw some cars surround and stop a taxi. 
The Shabiha poured out of the cars and threw open the taxi doors, yanked out of the driver, who they began beating, and then pulled out the two women from the back. The thugs ripped off the women's headscarves and threatened to rape them. The women tried to get away, but the Shabiha caught them and grabbed their breasts. The women were screaming. Passersby yelled out, but the agents ignored the cries and dragged the women into a nearby building lobby as other Shabiha closed and blocked the doors. I could no longer see what was happening, but I could still hear the women's screams. I felt worse at that moment than I had ever felt in my life, even when I was being tortured. I felt so powerless. I wanted to defend the women, but I did nothing for fear that my mother or sister would face the same exact fate if I intervened. There was nothing I could do. With my blood boiling, I kept staring in the direction of the screams. A friend tugged at my sleeve. A passing security agent saw where I was looking and shouted at me to move on. A friend pleaded with me to leave. I turned and walked away without saying a word. When I got home, I went up to the roof, collapsed, and cried like a baby. Unquote. That was a passage from My Country, a memoir written by Qasem Eid. Of all of the horrifying first-person accounts I've come across doing the research for this podcast, that one is one of the worst. And look, the regime isn't taking a targeted approach to the opposition. They don't know who to target in a lot of cases. So they, at least the hardliners within the regime who didn't want to compromise with protesters, immediately engaged in a campaign of indiscriminate terror. The sort of incident that Qasem Eid described in his memoir was intended to intimidate other people, a way of saying, a way of saying, look what can happen to you if you're not careful. As early as April 2011, the Assad regime was already engaging in these sort of activities. Also on April 10th, the city of Banias had its electricity, telephone lines, and internet access cut off before soldiers and pro-regime militias fired live ammunition at protesters. This was once again followed up with claims from the regime that their soldiers had been attacked. For the next several days, opposition activists will publicize eyewitness accounts of soldiers and tanks surrounding the city and firing on protesters, while state media will air claims that a unit of soldiers was ambushed here or a soldier was shot by a sniper there. Whatever the truth is, it's almost certain that the vast majority of people killed in Banias in April 2011 were protesters. It was around this time that Bashar al-Assad first had a meeting with residents of Douma, apparently to express his condolences for those killed on April 1st, before meeting days later with a delegation from Dara. Again, we return to the theme of mixed messaging. While security forces are publicly engaging in brutality, Assad himself somewhat presented himself as a moderating figure. Kinda, not really. Perhaps what some call mixed messaging could be described by others as a carrot-and-stick approach. Afterward, the Dara delegation claimed that Assad promised to rescind Syria's unpopular emergency law. Soon, the presence of security forces in Dara was greatly reduced, temporarily. That wouldn't last very long, as we'll see in a future episode. Later that day, he announced that hundreds of prisoners would be released, with the caveat of, quote, as long as they were not involved in criminal acts, unquote. This begs the question, if they weren't involved in criminal acts, why were those hundreds of people sent to prison in the first place? 
oh, that's right, we're talking about a totalitarian regime where anyone who expresses dissent is either sent to prison or just disappears forever. One can perhaps see why protesters remained unconvinced by Assad's claim that reforms were coming, especially after the speech on March 30th, as well as the multitude of state abuses that took place before and after. The trends mentioned in this episode just kept going. On April 14th, at least 300 people were reported to have protested against the regime in the majority Druze city of Sueda. From the perspective of high-ranking government officials, this was a nightmare. Their nightmare would only get worse the following day, April 15th, 2011, the Friday of Determination. People in Dara and Duma responded to the dialogue between the regime and delegations from their communities by protesting. Dara residents made full use of the fact that they finally had a chance to go out into the streets and vent their anger without fear of being beaten up or shot. In Duma, thousands of people gathered in Abbasin Square, I really hope I said that right, to protest. However, this being a suburb near the capital city, security forces quickly arrived to attack protesters with guns, sticks, and tear gas. The fact that tens of thousands of people protested in cities across Syria on Friday, April 15th, made it abundantly clear that the regime's token gestures and empty words weren't going to be enough to assuage the anger expressed by the Syrian opposition. It's worth noting that in the days that followed April 15th, the words Ashab Yurid Iskat An-Nazam, or the people want to bring down the regime, are starting to be heard more and more frequently. Earlier, no one dared openly say so. Some people genuinely thought that the system could be reformed from within. Others simply thought they'd face worse punishment for saying that than for just calling for moderate reforms. But when calling for moderate reforms proved to be enough to get one shot in the streets, a lot of people gradually lost their fear. There were still some people who believed that they could pressure the government into making real concessions, and it was still more common to hear Allah Surya Horea Wabas than Ashab Yurida Scott and Nizam. But the open calls for overthrowing the Assad-led government were definitely on the increase at this point. On April 16th, Assad gave another speech to the nation. He announced that the emergency law would be repealed soon, and pledged dialogue with trade unions. Again, that wasn't one of the four things the protesters were demanding, but also made it clear that, quote, maintaining internal stability, unquote, was his government's highest priority, which is funny considering how much how most of the instability at this point was the result of soldiers and Shabiha murdering protesters. Assad also mentioned granting citizenship to Kurds rendered stateless by racist laws. The regime needed all the allies it could, it could get at this point, and were probably hoping that they could use Kurdish self-interest as a cudgel against the opposition. However, Syria's Kurdish population wasn't just willing to overlook decades of discrimination. Sure, being granted citizenship of the nation one was born in was nice, but where was this back in the 1960s? or the 70s, or the 80s, or the 90s, or the 2000s, before and after the uprising in Kamishli. This one nice thing wasn't enough to make their grievances go away. 
Another thing to note is that while a large segment of the mainstream Syrian opposition supported and openly called for Kurdish rights, there was unity. There was some unity. But there was also, unfortunately, a segment within the opposition that harbored similar, if not the same exact Arab nationalist views as the regime to one degree or another. Some of these people would go on to either applaud or actively participate in atrocities against the Syrian Kurds at the hands of the armed opposition, claiming that they were allies of Assad. This claim is an issue we will examine more thoroughly in a future episode. The point is that a concession here and there to Syria's Kurdish population wasn't enough to get a majority of them to overlook a half century of oppression. But this, and other developments we'll go over in future episodes, helped convince some Arabs among the Syrian opposition that Kurds could not be trusted unless they completely subordinated themselves to Syrian Arab interests, typically those of the hardline Islamist variety. But for now, we're getting ahead of ourselves. Opposition demonstrations continued in the days following April 16th, with one protest in Bania standing out where a thousand women, it was an all-female protest, a thousand women reportedly chanted, no Sunni, no Alawi, freedom is what we want. The Syrian opposition often receives criticism today for being an overwhelmingly Sunni Muslim movement, but one can clearly see an anti-sectarian trend in early to mid-2011. Protesters in Syria, at least some of them, were smart enough to realize that they could not succeed as an exclusively Sunni movement. They needed to get as many Alawis, Ismailis, Druze, and Christians as they could get. For a time, they did a very good job, gradually attracting religious minorities to their cause, and as I said earlier, this scared the hell out of the Assad regime. The regime's public relations people, if you could even call them that, didn't take this lying down. They started devoting more and more time and resources to spreading the claim that the opposition were all extremist Salafi jihadis plotting to exterminate Syria's non-Sunni Muslim population. The Ba'ath Party organized more pro-regime demonstrations, and some of, some of them were indeed very large, which notably went untouched by security forces, while pro-opposition demonstrations were beaten up, arrested, or killed in places as far off as small towns or villages, not to mention major cities. Damascus and Aleppo had a reputation at this point for being pro-Assad cities, thanks to the presence of intelligence and military personnel, plus their families. But there are small-scale protests going on in both places, with a few moderately sized ones in Damascus at this point. I'll go ahead and say that Aleppo is going to hold out as a regime stronghold for a lot longer, but things will drastically change in 2012. At this point, though, Aleppo is only seeing small protests. But in the nearby town of Al-Bab, however, there are a lot of people protesting. What we're seeing across the country is that people are, people are walking from one city or town to a nearby town or village to start protesting them. This is part of the reason why the regime has sent the military to seal off Dara, Banias, and more places in the days soon to come. It might, I might sound redundant saying this, but there is a full-fledged information war brewing in Syria at this point. Both sides are trying to paint themselves in the most positive light possible, and their opponents in the exact opposite way. This is why you hear, to, this is why you hear a wide variety of contradictory claims about what the regime and the opposition did or didn't say or do in 2011. People who talk about Syria in the context at this point ongoing armed conflict often make note 
of this information war, and rightfully point out its almost unprecedented effect in our current digital age. But what gets left out is that this information war, the battle of both sides' narratives, began long before the majority of the world's refugees were Syrian. People across the world were confused, so to say, from the very beginning. The Syrian information war was not waged exclusively in cyberspace. There was a night and day difference in coverage between that of Al Jazeera, a pro-Muslim Brotherhood TV channel owned by a member of the royal family of Qatar, versus that of the Assad regime-owned Syrian Arab News Agency, or SANA. But this information war had real-world consequences, as we'll see in a quote from Dr. Wendy Perlman's book, We Crossed a Bridge and It Trembled. In this passage, she's quoting Adam, a media organizer from Latakia. Quote, The regime dealt with each region in Syria differently. In some places, they tried soft politics. In other places, like Latakia, they went extreme from the very beginning. It was a manipulative, evil way of doing business. One night, I woke up to heavy shooting. Being the idiot that I am, I got in my car and went to trace the source of the shooting. I got to this huge square in Latakia and found all of the Shabiha. Shabiha were the only ones armed at the time, apart from the security forces and the army. They were civilians, most likely Alawites, working for somebody connected to the Assad family or other influential families. They did whatever they wanted, and nobody dared to stop them. I reached the Shabiha, and they're all sitting there, shooting into the air. It's four o'clock in the morning, and they're blasting pro-Assad songs. Many of them were drunk or just being stupid, but they couldn't have gone out and started shooting without authorization. So there was a purpose. The regime wanted to say, we're still in control, and if you try anything, we'll break your face. They were celebrating in an Alawite neighborhood. After 10 or 15 minutes, they went on to one of the biggest squares in a Sunni neighborhood. This went on as a huge convoy, waking everybody up, shooting in the air, playing these songs. They were filled with rage. A big reason why was, was that rumors were circulating that jihadists from all over the world were coming to behead Alawites. I heard the rumors, too, because I lived in an Alawite neighborhood. You know, many Alawites hated the Assad regime, and I think the regime knew that. They knew that the Alawite community is their lifeline, their base of support, unquote. That was Adam, a media organizer from Latakia, quoted by Dr. Wendy Perlman in her book, We Crossed a Bridge and It Trembled. Basically, one's location determined what they would see taking place. In some places, there would be pro-regime demonstrations organized by the Ba'ath Party. In others, militias would go around intimidating people, basically saying, don't even think about protesting. In places like Dara, or increasingly at this point, Homs, for example, large protests and accompanying massacres by the regime are becoming more and more frequent. I'm going to say this over and over again as the show goes on. If the Assad regime actually intended to placate protesters, it may well have been the most incompetent attempt at appeasement in recorded human history. Or, perhaps that was never the goal. Rather, intimidation, with a side of divide and conquer, was the regime's real intention. But then again, with 17 different intelligence agencies operating independently without top-down direction, you're gonna get some confusion. The bottom line is this. Protests in Syria are going to escalate, and so will the death toll. 
This is leading up to a notorious incident on April 19th, 2011 that will change the hearts and minds of several opposition supporters. The city of Homs, the third largest city in Syria, is seeing thousands of people protest every day. Soldiers and Shabiha are reacting with increasing violence, in one case shooting 25 protesters in a single day. Gradually, pictures and videos of protesters being shot start circulating around the internet. This led to an incident described by Karim, a doctor from Homs who spoke to Dr. Wendy Perlman. Quote, Negotiations were ongoing between the regime and some supporters and some representatives of the people. And here the regime betrayed us. I was at home in bed, about three kilometers away. I woke up to the to a sound that I thought was heavy rain. Heavy rain. I went to the window and realized it was bullets. Security forces were attacking the square. People were being slaughtered. I called the hospital and asked them to send me an ambulance. What I saw on the road from my house to the square was extraordinary. All of Homs was on the streets. People didn't know what was happening. They were running, afraid. Security forces opened fire on the ambulance, so it wasn't possible to move a single injured person. Only one or two wounded people managed to escape and make it to the hospital. We just sat there and waited and cried. There was nothing we could do. People were dying, and we couldn't even reach them to offer first aid. The next morning, people saw that the square had been hosed with water. There was no trace of anything whatsoever. They took away the people and removed all the traces of the crime. The only thing that remained were bullet holes on the buildings. Unquote. That was Kareem, a doctor from Homs, quoted by Dr. Wendy Perlman in her book, We Crossed a Bridge and It Trembled. The unique thing about the Clock Tower Square Massacre wasn't so much what happened, but how people reacted when they heard about it. The regime denied any wrongdoing, as always, while different factions of the opposition spun different stories about it. There's a quote from Rania Abuzaid's book, No Turning Back, that I think does a very good job explaining this. Quote, The day before that incident, a sea of protesters gathered around Clock Tower Square after a mass funeral for 14 protesters. They renamed it Freedom Square and vowed to remain until Assad fell. It was one of the first attempted sit-ins, but the regime would not concede a public space and allow a Syrian version of Egypt's Tahrir Square or Tunisia's Avenue Bourgeba. Between 2 and 3 a.m., government forces killed and detained an unknown number of people, and then hosed down the square as though nothing happened. Grainy video from the night showed people running around Clock Tower Square, and the deafening sound of sustained gunfire. Fuck you and your president, screamed a young man within view of the soldiers. Others held up spent cartridges as proof that the soldiers were firing live rounds. It was a turning point in the struggle for Homs, although years later some of the men present that night would admit that claims of a massacre were exaggerated to garner sympathy, unquote. That was an excerpt from No Turning Back by Rania Abuzaid. There's also another video apparently filmed the very same night showing regime soldiers and militiamen gathered at the very same location, Clock Tower Square in Homs, or Freedom Square, chanting pro-Assad slogans. 
I cannot independently verify if it was actually filmed on April 19th. It was uploaded to YouTube on April 25th, 2011. But I can confirm that it is indeed filmed at the very same place where the Clock Tower Square massacre took place. If you Google Clock Tower Square and then you've watched this video, you can see that it is the same location. So, seriously, these dudes were chanting pro-Assad slogans in the same place where they had massacred a bunch of protesters either that same night or a few nights earlier. Subtle. That's very subtle. Assholes. The massacre contributed to some Syrians deciding that they needed to take up arms to protect themselves from the regime. This also coincided with the release of violent jihadists from prison by the regime. Both narratives about the armed opposition, that the Free Syrian Army engaged in self-defense, or jihadists plotting in the background while using the protesters as a smokescreen, have some truth to them. Videos of the Clock Tower Square massacre and similar incidents across the country convinced some members of the opposition that armed conflict was inevitable. They are still a small minority within the opposition in April 2011, but their numbers will gradually increase over the coming months. But you've also got a handful of jihadists who have just been released from Sidonia and other hellish prisons, places with a daily quota from inmates dying while being tortured. This was either a poorly conceived attempt by the regime to placate the opposition, or, more likely, a deliberate strategy to contaminate the Syrian revolution. You can't get away with cracking skulls and butchering people when their public face is Mazen Darwish or Razan Zaituna. That's why the regime described the protesters as being terrorists or traitors from the very beginning. That's why Syrian state media is constantly running stories about foreign jihadists infiltrating via neighboring nations. And now, very conveniently for the regime, there are a small number of real terrorists on the loose. Why? Because the regime let them out of jail. Could these guys have been the mysterious snipers we've mentioned earlier? At least some of them? Probably not. These dudes just got out of prison, sometime, sometimes after a decade or several in a literal dungeon. Would they have motive? Sure. But would they have the means and capability? That's harder to say for certain. What we do know is that over time, the regime will release one batch of terrorists after another while arresting swaths of protesters. They will spend most of 2011 under, operating underground organizing and preparing for what they see as an inevitable war against the regime. But they saw it that way for different reasons than the protesters who are losing faith in peaceful protest. They are not disappointed to see Assad crack down and allow the security forces to inflict horrors in broad daylight. If we use the term liberal to describe the protesters, the jihadis are illiberal. It's not about toppling a totalitarian regime, although they may say so. For them, it's about replacing an illiberal secular regime with an illiberal Islamist one. And that made them a far easier enemy for the regime to fight than the protesters peacefully calling for liberal reforms. A more convenient enemy, one might say. One last thing before we move on to the next segment. Some people in the opposition are going to take up arms purely for defensive purposes. There are going to be a lot of cases where the male members of one family guarding their village with shotguns are going to end up being labeled rebels. 
Starting with the Clock Tower Square Massacre, the trend going forward is, this, is the sense that the regime has no limits, and any neighborhood where protests take place will be subject to indiscriminate violence. Frankly, they weren't wrong. So whatever people say about extremists lurking in the background, and future members of the Free Syrian Army buying, buying guns on the black market to either protect their homes, or even in some cases seek revenge for attacks by the regime, we always have to keep in mind how constantly brutal the regime has been for over a month at this point. The revolution started on March 15th, or, or March 18th, depending on who you ask. Well over 100 people were killed on March 25th alone, and the killing has not stopped as of April 19th, 2011. People who were angry at the regime earlier are furious now. Did Bashar al-Assad keep his promise that Syria's emergency law would be repealed? Sort of. Dr. David Lesh explains why this didn't satisfy protesters in his book, Syria, the Fall of the House of Assad. Quote, On April 19th, the government approved legislation lifting the 1963 emergency law, a key opposition demand. Two days later, Assad signed the decrees ending the state of emergency and abolishing the, the Supreme State Security Courts. The problem with this is that, while the emergency law was lifted, there were other existing and newly implemented presidential decrees that were equally restrictive, such as making members of the security forces immune to prosecution or making membership of the Muslim Brotherhood punishable by death. Basically, the status quo remained the same. Another law was also passed to protect national security, uphold the dignity of the citizenry, and combat terror. The Syrian population knew what this type of ambiguous, overarching law meant. It gave security forces wide latitude to interpret what was a threat to national security or the, or the dignity of Syrian citizens. To many Syrians, the emergency law continued in all but name." Unquote. That was an excerpt from Syria, The Fall of the House of Assad by Dr. David Lesh. So basically the regime's just talking out of both sides of its mouth while thousands of people keep protesting every single day. But these are small, regular protests. It's got nothing on the next Friday coming up. The biggest one yet. April 22nd, 2011 will go on to be remembered as The Great Friday. David Lesh writes, quote, on April 22nd, Syria was rocked by the largest protests yet, held in a number of cities across the country. This was, correspondingly, the bloodiest day yet. Reports from human rights groups claimed that over a hundred people were killed, although government estimates were lower and focused on the security personnel who they claimed had died at the hands of terrorists or armed gangs, unquote. That was another excerpt from Syria, The Fall of the House of Assad, by Dr. David Lesh. This is the deadliest day since March 25th, 2011, when the regime started to massacre people. This day sees large-scale protests in Damascus, of all places. Finally! The Duma and Harasta suburbs are filled to the gills with protesters. Dara, Banias, Homs, Kamishli, and 20 other towns across the country saw opposition come out en masse. The Great Friday protests were a peaceful counterattack by the opposition against the regime's atrocities, dishonest claims of concessions, and efforts to keep the population divided on ethnic or sectarian lines. For more on this, we turn again to Dr. Wendy Perlman's book, We Crossed a Bridge and It Trembled, where she quotes Anas, a doctor from Huta. Quote, 
The Great Friday demonstration was held in solidarity with Easter out of respect for our Christian brothers. We wanted to encourage Christian Syrians to come out and participate. We were a huge gathering of more than 100,000 people. People came out from all over the Damascus suburbs. From Duma, Harasta, Zamalka, Kafirbatna. I remember we crossed a bridge and it trembled underneath our feet because we were so many people. Regime forces were waiting for us. They fired tear gas and we retreated. Cars filled with police and Shabiha came from every direction. Because I'm a doctor, I tried to help whenever someone was injured. People were choking on tear gas and we pour cola on their faces, which counters the effect of tear gas. Their faces were sticky and glistening. We chant, freedom, 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 horaya, 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 and then somebody shouted, the people want to bring down the regime. Ashab Yurid is Scott on Nazam. Everyone went silent. This was the first time we'd heard people say that. No one spoke for 10 to 15 seconds. Honestly, we were afraid hey, that this guy could be part of the secret police. Everyone looked to each other and thought, this guy just said what we've been wanting to say for years. Unquote. That was that was Anas, a doctor from Huta, quoted by quoted by Dr. Wendy Perlman in her book, We Crossed a Bridge and It Trembled. And yeah, that is the part of the book where the title comes from. And there you have it. People in a Damascus suburb of all places chanting, Ashab Yurid Eskat An Nazam, the people demand the fall of the regime. Something that would have been unthinkable, unimaginable, just a short time ago. The Great Friday protests were a massive, albeit peaceful, show of force by the Syrian opposition. This day disproved the notion that they were weak, that their numbers were small, that, were a, that they were a primarily diaspora phenomenon with no local support. Activists who operated in secret and people who occasionally went to protests were joined by first-time demonstrators put off by the regime's abuses and Assad's flagrant disregard for protesters advocating reforms. Streets and town squares across the nation are now full of people chanting, raising their fists, and defacing the portraits of Bashar al-Assad and his family found in every public setting. There are even videos of people climbing on top of statues of Hafez al-Assad and hitting it with their shoes. People are going out of their way, at very great risk, to make it clear to the regime that they are not going to take their daily miseries lying down anymore. And the regime, in turn, made it clear that there was going to be no more Mr. Nice totalitarian dictatorship anymore. They showed their true colors with the blood they spilled and the lives they snuffed out on April 22nd, as well as those before and after. The soldiers and Shabiha aren't firing warning shots anymore, because the protesters aren't scared of them anymore. Qasem Eid writes about this in his memoir, My Country, quote, In the largest demonstration in the history of Modamia, over 20,000 people had taken to the streets, with women joining the protests in large numbers for the first time. The regime had killed 15 people by firing live ammunition, and pandemonium prevailed in the town. The atmosphere was electrifying. We would curse Assad, chant for freedom, invoke God, and cry, The people and the army are one, or shame on he who shoots his own people. 
Gunshots would crackle through the air at every protest, and we would run for cover, only to reassemble and resume our chance as soon as the gunfire subsided. While the shots scared us, they also increased our will to resist. Over time, we came to recognize the sound of each type of weapon. Long bursts of gunfire were actually safer. They meant that the security forces were firing over our heads with machine guns. When we heard individual gunshots, though, we ran for our lives because they were fired directly into the crowd. These single shots would be followed by bullets whizzing over our heads, windows shattering behind us, and the wounded cries of Modamia's latest protest casualties. Unquote. That was an excerpt from My Country by Qasem Eid. So, what did the Great Friday mean in the grand scheme of things? It proved beyond a shadow of a doubt that the culture of fear that every authoritarian regime relies upon to intimidate a population was starting to fade away. The methods that had worked to crush dissent in the past were no longer as effective in a time where somebody with a smartphone could publicize atrocities for a worldwide audience via social media. This enabled the opposition to retake the initiative in the Syrian information war, when both sides showed their true faces for everyone to see. A month of mixed messaging and contradictory statements from the regime fade away like tissue paper in a waterfall when one focuses on the brutality that the soldiers in Shabiha inflict on a near-daily basis, culminating in a blood-soaked climax on April 22, 2011. This day will be remembered for having both the largest protests and highest death toll thus far, with somewhere between 109 and 200 people losing their lives. It will remain the single deadliest day until August, when the mass murder of protesters starts looking more and more like an organized, deliberate genocide. Earlier, soldiers and Shabiha fired warning shots and sporadically shot to kill with the intention of terrorizing the protesters into giving up. The Great Friday made it abundantly clear that this strategy, if one could even call it that, had failed. The regime responded to this by adopting a more deliberately homicidal approach. Dara is about to be put under a brutal siege. In just a few days from April 22nd, tanks are going to roll into the city and shell houses. There will be a full week where anyone in certain neighborhoods who goes out into the streets for any reason will be immediately shot. In Dara and other particularly restive cities, the regime will send the military in to kick down doors and apprehend any anybody whose name happens to be on a list or whose face happened to be photographed at a protest. The next month will see the regime give up on intimidation and switch to brute force. Snipers and machine gunners will be tasked with eliminating protesters, not dispersing them. Making them run away won't cut it anymore. They'll just come back to protest as soon as they can. The Assad regime's goal, as of now, is to kill or capture as many protesters as possible. To cull the expanding Syrian opposition to a number that's easier to keep off the streets.
Thank you for listening to What Happened to Syria, a podcast about the country, the people, and their impact on the wider world since 2011. This has been our seventh episode, The Great Friday. Follow us on Twitter, at SyriaPod. That's at symbol, capital S, Syria, capital P, pod, so, so that you can stay up to date with future episodes. You can also email us at whathappentosyriapodcast at gmail.com. That's the name of the podcast, but without a question mark, at gmail.com. One word. We encourage anyone to reach out to us if you think we got a detail wrong, or if you have information relevant to the topics we discussed. If you are Syrian, part of the Syrian diaspora, or have otherwise been personally affected by events in Syria since 2011, please reach out to us. We'd love to have you on the show. If you like what you heard and you want to support future episodes, please consider supporting us on Patreon. Go to patreon.com slash what happened to Syria to support us for as little as $1 a month. You can access bonus episodes for just $3 a month and join our Discord server for $5 a month. You can also get fan-requested content and a shout-out in each episode when you join as a VIP patron for $20 a month. Shout-out to our first two patrons on Patreon, Jaeger DePato and Evan Kennedy. Evan's good to meet you. Thank you to all of our listeners. I'm Sean Hastings, the creator and host of What Happened to Syria. We'll see you next week. 